going to ask Dennis to come up um, and put him in the hot seat here. Um, you've submitted your questions, and Niels is actually sorting through them. Um, but as I have a question to ask him, so if you don't mind, I'll ask him a question, um, and Niels will bring some of the questions that you have asked. Um, Dennis, I, to me, as I look at the world, I am, as you say, um, I, I see the vastness of the universe. Um, and I sometimes see like things like the ant, um, ant uh, 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 on earth, and I, I go, oh, how could God actually care for people like us? I mean, the same question that you've asked. I think the line between wonder and doubt is a, sort of a thin line. Um, if you believe in God, then it becomes wondrous. If you don't believe in God, then you might ask, well, how could that actually happen? Um, what do you do when you see this? And how do you go to the side of wonder rather than doubt as you uh, do your research? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a wonderful question, I think. Um, and I think, obviously, it depends, as you said, it depends how we frame the world, how we see the world. We can look at the world with dark glasses on, as it were, and we can see it's all a mess and all the terrible things, and we can, but also we can see the uh, the world through the eyes of faith, and uh, we see it in a different way. I tell you one thing that I really find encouraging, really thinking about the material world around us, is the fact of Jesus, his own incarnation. I mean, actually, Christmas is a key here when we remember that Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world. In a way, it was a statement about God's placing huge value on the material world. Jesus became like us. He became a baby. He became, he was uh, brought up as a baby in weakness. He had to be looked after. And so, in a way, it was God saying yes to this material world. My own son is becoming part of this material world. And so, Jesus himself has shared his identity with us as a material being who actually had uh, needs and wants, and he got hungry, and he cried as a baby, and he needed to be looked after, and so on. And that's a reminder to me uh, that this really is God's world. You know, this is the world that he loved so much that he gave his only son. His only son was incarnated into this physical flesh in which we find ourselves. And, and so God, is, God cares for the physical. He cares for the physical world um, so much that he actually, as it were, became physical through his son, the Lord Jesus. So, so that, to me, is a key point, actually. Yeah. Thank you very so, much for that answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I do the same thing. I mean, I just kind of go... Well, this world is so big. How do I know that God exists? I, I think about Jesus. I think about uh, how he came 2,000 years ago and the evidence for that um, as well. Uh, there are a few questions that people have submitted. Um, here are, uh, uh, here's a question. Um, there are very strong anti-Christian scientists, uh, people like Dawkins who wrote God Delusion. Any simple answer to that um, or a good book to read to answer those questions? Oh, okay. So, uh, yes, so... Um, well, first, a couple of points here. First of all, unfortunately, some of the atheistic uh, scientists, um, like Richard Dawkins is a good example, who shout most loudly, give the impression that the scientific community is somehow generally anti-Christian. I think that's not the case, actually. Um, I, the people like Dawkins are very rare species, in my experience, okay, in the scientific community. And I have sat in the coffee room in my own research institute and listened to um, 
uh, just people in their general conversation. These are not Christians. And, and they actually find Dawkins embarrassing uh, because he's so extreme. Okay, so, and, and you know, British people, we don't like extremes, actually. <laughs> okay, so, and so somebody comes out very extreme like that, just they feel, you know, this gives science a bad name, okay? And, and so it doesn't really help the sci- understanding of science either. And the fact is, there are plenty of Christians around um, in the scientific community. Now, if you want to talk to somebody who knows Richard Dawkins personally, you can talk to Andrew Jackson, who's here afterwards, who uh, was studying zoology at Oxford University, uh, not as a Christian, and he became a Christian during the time he was studying under Richard Dawkins. Okay, so there you go. Uh, so he's an expert on that. He will explain how that happened. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. So, you know, sometimes when people come out with their extreme views, it makes their views look a bit silly, I mm. think, actually. So generally, the, the scientific community varies depending on what country you're in. Um, as a matter of fact, there has been sociological research done on the scientific community here in Hong Kong mm. in a comparison with, with, with Taiwan, also with um, India and with Turkey and with uh, Italy and lots of in America and England. So a great big transnational survey. And what's really interesting is that in many Western countries, uh, it is true that the proportion of people who believe in God is lower in the scientific community than in the general population. Hmm. But, but in Hong Kong, it's the other way around. Hmm. It's the other way around. So the proportion of scientists, uh, these are people in physics and biology particularly, that, those are the cohorts. So the proportion of scientists in, co- in, in Hong Kong who believe in God and a personal God who answers prayer um, is actually twofold higher in the scientific community compared to the Hong Kong average population. That's great to know. It so, confirms my suspicion that we live in one of the greatest so, cities in the world. There you go. <laughs> that just proves your point. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? So I think sometimes what I'm saying really is that people who shout loudly about atheism and science aren't always the people who really represent you know, the scientific community as a whole. Mm. On books, by the way, there are at least 20 answer books to Richard Dawkins, um, lots and lots of different books, um, there's quite a, there's a good book, or quite a slim book, called um, The Dawkins Delusion, is it? Yeah, it's called The Dawkins Delusion. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. So the answer book is called The Dawkins Delusion. And that's written by Alison McGrath, who was here a couple of weeks ago in Hong Kong, by the way, uh, from Oxford. And that's, in, uh, that's a good brief book. Uh, and it's published by SPCK in London. Hmm. Okay. Uh, here's another question for you. What ties do you see in Scripture to your studies in biology? Well, I think Scripture, you know, we don't find science, modern science in the Bible. The Bible was written, of course, uh, centuries, many centuries before modern science came into being. So I didn't go around looking for modern science in the pages mm. of Scripture because I think if we do that, uh, we're kind of misusing Scripture. It's not really what it's there for. Having said that, I think it gives the general framework in which we do science, and indeed is very, very influential in the uh, origins of modern science. Mm. And, and so if you read Psalm 104, we read of a God there who's utterly involved in the, the daily, what we normally, we, we call the sort of normal workings of nature. You know, the, the sun rises and the sun sets, there's winds, there's, uh, there's the animals feeding on the grass. We read in Psalm 104, the lion roars seeking its food from God. In that sense, that um, the whole of the uh, the whole of the created order, all the things that some of the things we might not find particularly nice in the whole food chain, everything, the whole part of it, 
If you read the Psalms, if you read Job, if you read Isaiah, all through the Old Testament, it's all part of God's wonderful creation. Hmm. So I think that's the framing that we have in which we then carry out our biology. In other words, this is God's world, not ours. This is God's biology. And all we can do as scientists is to seek to understand a little bit more about what God is doing in this wonderful creation. So God is the author of creation. He is the source of all that exists. And so all we can do as scientists is struggle to you know, understand how it works, how it came into being, all that kind of thing. That's our job to do. But it's all part of that wonderful creation. Thanks very much. Uh, there are more questions than we could ask, but let me ask just a couple more. One is, um, what's the biggest conflict between science and faith that you've seen? You know, that I think depends a lot um, on where you are in the world and, uh, and so forth. So I think for some people, it's maybe the ethical questions that are raised by modern scientific discoveries. You may have heard of embryo editing uh, manipulating early embryos in such a way that um, their genetic uh, constitution will be changed and passed on, possibly eventually if these edited embryos are planted in the mother and uh, that would give rise to changed human beings in some way. And, and so, so those sort of big ethical issues are some of the big ones, I think, that people find the biggest problem and biggest challenge to faith, how to cope with those. And on Friday night, by the way, a little plug here, Hong Kong University... 7.30 p.m., I'll be speaking to those ethical issues mm. if anyone's free to come along. Other parts of the world, people find the whole issue of creation, evolution, all that kind of discussion uh, the most challenging. Um, other parts of the world, um, actually, if you go to Africa, we've had Faraday courses in Africa, and often it's the, the whole discussion about demon possession in relation to illness. Mm. and that kind of, that, That's the big discussion there. So I think the, the issues are very culturally framed, actually, and sure. it just depends what country you're in, where you're at, and so forth. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, here's another question. What doubts have you uh, have been presented uh, in, in your faith, in your own journey uh, related to science? Well, you know, I wish in a way, when people... I've had this question asked <laughs> often, and I, I sort of feel... Well, I wish in a way I'd been through a great period of doubt, you know, and come through it, and then finally, you know, got through that. And, and actually, I haven't. <laughs> okay, so it's just simply that... I guess the nearest I got to it was an, as, as an undergraduate um, doing biochemistry at Oxford. I read a book there called, it was somebody you'd never heard of. It was by a psychologist called William Sargent. It's called Battle for the Mind, I think. Well, anyway, it was all about brainwashing and all that kind of stuff. And I can remember having this thought, ooh, I've been brought up in a Christian home. You know, does that mean I've just been brainwashed? You know, does that mean I've just been uh, manipulated in some way so that I didn't have any free will? And, and that thought came into my mind, I have to confess. Hmm. Um, but I also uh, remember a very wise um, professor, Christian professor, who said, well, he said, you know, if you have these questions and you can't answer them now, he said, well, I have, I have an intray. He said, I part them in my intray, and now and again I come back to them and I think about them, and eventually they get resolved. It takes some time. And so I thought, and I part that thought in my intray. And then, of course, as I went on, I realized, yeah, sure, um, I've been influenced by my Christian parents, just as, no doubt, atheists have been influenced by their atheist parents, maybe. And, and, but so what? <laughs> you know, so what? In other words, everyone's been influenced by something, but it doesn't tell you what tr- truth is, does it? It, tell, it doesn't tell you what you, you should believe. It doesn't tell you how you should justify your faith and so forth. 
So I think that's what we have to remember, that as we, as we grow up and we may be influenced by this family or that family, by this environment, that environment, but we can still be independent thinkers. We can still branch out on our own. We can read the Bible and say, hey, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that Jesus who is who he claimed he was, and so I'm going to go that way. I'm going to become a Christian. So we can still, we have to justify our own faith, our own beliefs, I think, as Christians. Those of us here who are Christians, we have to do that in a way that's rational, that's based on evidence, and that we are convinced about because we have thought it out for ourselves. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. Could we give him a round of applause? plausible theory we have. It kind of fits the data that we have and that sort of thing. We, we never use the word proof in biology, okay? I don't think. Um, so that's just one little point about... So that tells you something about how... Um, so it's about plausibility. It's about what theories are supported by the evidence. So, so I don't think science... It's, so science itself can reveal much more about the wonders of the universe around us as we were thinking earlier. And so I think definitely can it make... Uh, belief in God more plausible? Absolutely. There are certain specific things that come out of science um, that are certainly very consistent with an understanding of God as creator. I'll just mention uh, one of those in particular. It's called the fine-tuning of the universe, where the physical constants of the universe, that is to say those uh, parameters that have to be exactly right in order for this universe to exist, in order for it to exist long enough for us to be here, in order to have life and so forth, those physical constants are very finely tuned. If you just turn the dial a little way, that way or the other way, there would be no universe. They've just got to be exactly right. And in fact, there are six of them which are particularly important. Um, And so that's called the fine-tuning argument. Um, so is that a, that's not a knockdown argument for God's existence, but it makes much more sense, I think. If you believe in God as creator, well, that's what you expect. You expect to see a universe that is designed in such a way as to make the universe exist and to enable us to be here and to enable us to be made of carbon as well and uh, for us to be made of these elements, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, oxygen, we're all made of the same stuff here made in the dying moments of exploding stars. Isn't that amazing? We're all stardust one day. Uh, just that kind of understanding of the way the whole universe works, it makes, to me anyway, it makes a lot more sense if we believe in God as that great mind behind the universe who's upholding and sustaining and creating all of that wonderful matter with all its great properties and so on. Again, no, it's not a knockdown. If it was a knockdown argument for God, the whole world would believe in God, but they don't, okay? So we're not here into knockdown arguments. We're here into plausibility. What's the most plausible explanation for there being something rather than nothing, okay? That's, that, that's the key question to be thinking about. Thanks very much. Um, it's very helpful. Uh, another question. We believe that there is, uh, there is the God creating the universe, but how do we know that that God is the God mentioned in the Bible or Christ- the Christian God? Sure, that's a very good question. So how would we know that? You know, that natural theology, what I was referring to earlier on, can only take us so far. And in fact, you find that in Romans 1, where Paul, actually writing to the church in Rome, says, well, people are without excuse um, because at least they can believe in a power, a creative power, um, that has brought the universe into being. So in that sense, they've had that level of light just by looking at the world around. 
So natural theology can take you up to that point. But it can't tell you anything about that God. It can't tell you, it couldn't tell you that God is love. I don't think you can just infer that God is love by looking at the world around you, uh, the physical world. So in other words, I think that um, the physical world can bring you to a belief in there's some power, there's some uh, intelligence in the universe, uh, but it can't tell you more about that. So for that, you need revelation, and that's why we need the Bible, uh, that God's revelation right through uh, the Old Testament, the people of Israel, all the way through to the coming of Christ, and then the wonderful revelation we have of God's character by looking at the person of Christ and so on. And that's where we find out, that's where we fill in the, the picture, if you like. I was just looking, actually, if you, if you turn around and you look at the picture on the back wall there, okay, so there we see a sort of outline, okay, you just see a general outline, and it looks like, actually, Jesus giving out, was that the last feeding supper? Feeding 5,000? I think, or feeding of 5,000, okay. So you have an outline there, you see my point, and so I think natural theology can give you an outline, oh yes, there's some great intelligence, there's something going on here, but it doesn't tell you, so you need revelation to fill in the picture, if you like, okay, and to fill in the outline and then tell you that, yes, God is a God of love, and God cares for you, and God loves you, and he wants you to come to a personal relationship with himself. I mean, that's all out of revelation. We don't just, we wouldn't learn that from physics. Absolutely. Okay, so, yeah. um, as, you, as you said before, God wrote this book of nature and book the, 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 the scripture as well, and good to pay attention to both. Um, how about this? Um, were there any science versus religion issues that you, you've struggled with, and how did you reconcile it? Yeah, to be honest, you know, my, my mother, uh, my late mother, um, was one of the early women to read physiology in Oxford. Uh, she was a Christian, and this, we're talking about the late 1920s, okay, so it was quite a few years ago. Um, yeah, there were only, uh, actually, there were only two, by the way, this is not quite on the question, this is a little bit in parenthesis, there were only two women in her year. Physiology at that time was done in preparation to read medicine, and um, years later, when I went to Oxford in the 1960s, I went to look for the photo of her matriculation year in Oxford for the late 1920s, and I, I found it. Actually, it was posted on the wall of the new biochemistry building. I guess that's the only place they had enough space for these old photos. And there I found the picture of my mother as a student in the late 1920s, and there was just a sea of men, all in black gowns and black suits, okay? And there were two women. One of them was my mother, and she was a Christian. They were both Christians. Both the women were Christians, okay? Because the church had a strong emphasis on education, as it does now, and as many people here, of course, are engaged in Christian education right here in Hong Kong. So, um, and the reason I tell you that is that I was brought up just to, uh, to believe the Bible, and I was brought up to, to believe in science, and they were always harmonious in my household, particularly for my mother's influence. She ended up, um, apart from raising us uh, four kids. He also was a teacher in physiology in a girls' school for many years and so on. So, so I was brought up in that place where the idea of conflict between science and faith was just totally... I'd never heard about it, actually. It was only when I went to Oxford, I was surprised to find uh, anybody who had uh, any kind of sense of conflict between science and faith. And I thought, that was really puzzling to me. I can think, why? I mean, why would you want that? You know? And so it was only... So really, I haven't had that sense ever mm. in my life which is disappointing for answering this question because <laughs> then I can't, I can't tell you. What I'd like to say is, yeah, I went through a great period of doubt with this huge conflict and then one night, you know, I fell on my knees and somehow 
you know, it was resolved. That wasn't the case. Okay? That's a great thing, isn't it? Just, just to yeah, so, realize that actually yeah. scientific community is not in all sort of opposition to religious community or Christianity. Right. That there is a, a leaving scientist yeah. like yourself and um, and others. Uh, and just to add, but can mm. I just add one point? Absolutely. I, I think that is a a missed, uh, misunderstanding actually people have often about the you know the scientific community. It's just a whole big bunch of atheists. Really not. I mean, really not. Actually, if you come to Cambridge and you want to find Christians um, professors, you don't go to the humanities. You go to the scientific community. That's where you'll find plenty of Christians who are leading scientists in Cambridge University. Um, and, and actually, it's the same in Hong Kong, I think. I mean, there are some data on that, which are quite interesting. So there are plenty of Christians out in the scientific community. Thank you very much. Uh, another question. How would you briefly share the gospel to someone who is very scientifically minded? Sure, yeah. Well, that's, that's a great question as well. I mean, I think, um, obviously, it depends exactly where they're coming from. Is that a scientifically minded person who has some belief in God or not? I actually sometimes make the, uh, well, first of all, I like to point out, you know, that, um, that, that sometimes people come with a thinking that um, science is all about evidence, and when you come to faith, you just shut your eyes and you jump, okay? Like existential faith, you know, and no evidence. So I'd like to get over that hurdle, first of all, that actually... Um, there's plenty of evidence for uh, believing in Christ. There's plenty of evidence for why you would want to believe in God. And, and so the way of thinking, actually, in a, a seeking faith is not really so different from the way that we think in, in the scientific community about theories and so forth. As we're just thinking, if you have a theory in science, you want a theory that makes sense of the data that you see. Theories in science are a bit like a map. So you take a map of Hong Kong and you put all the various features of Hong Kong in it. It makes sense of the city. Well, you hope it makes sense of the city so you can get around. Okay, and so um, and that, in science, that's the way it works. You want plausibility. You want something that makes sense of your data. And I would say to my scientist friend, well, in a way, seeking faith is very like that. So now you think about the wider canvas of all that we experience as we go through life. We think about the properties of the universe. We think about... I don't know, sociology and personal relationships and art and music and politics, anything you want. Well, what makes best sense of all that we experience in life? What makes it most coherent? For me personally, it makes it a lot more coherent if there is a God who has an ultimate purpose and plan for the universe and who is indeed the creator of the universe. So I try to make that kind of analogy between uh, what we do in science, the way of thinking in science, and the way I think that we think in faith. And by the way, because there's such a close link there, I think that's one of the reasons why certainly in, in, in British churches, generally speaking, especially in the university cities, there are far more uh, students in the sciences than there are in the humanities. Hmm. And that's been the same for decades, actually, in Britain. So it's exactly the opposite to the public image. So somehow the public think, oh, science is against faith. But actually, when you go in the churches, they're full of scientists, okay, so... You know, and I think it's partly because of this sort of affinity that we have in our way of thinking about evidence and so forth. Thank you very much. Um, a few more questions, a couple more questions. Um, when it comes to science and religion, people always choose science. Um, is it normal to choose both of them? I'm not exactly sure what this means, but I think it means that um, it's a... Uh, people, when, when the evidence or something they, they seem um, seems contradictory, they seem to just go, "Well, science must be right and religion must be wrong." Um, how would you answer something like that? 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's interesting because I think it's absolutely the case that science has a tremendous authority, actually, doesn't it? You know, that if you use a scientific argument for something, then I think for many people they find that pretty persuasive. Not everyone, but uh, they find that quite persuasive. And they, they, they sort of, science trumps religion as an authority. Okay. I think that's what that question, as you say, is about, isn't it? Somehow science will give you the answer. Religion is just personal opinion, all that kind of thing. Um, so, well, I think, you know, there needs to be a balance. Um, and also, I think it's worth pointing out that most of the science in my field, let's say, in my field of immunology, uh, well, okay, let's get specific here. I've, I've worked for many decades on T-cells. T-cells are the white blood cells that defend you against viral attack and so forth. Pretty important, okay. Um, and so an HIV infection, well, that virus cripples the ability of T-cells to mount an immune response, which is... Why you get it, why people get AIDS because their immune response is completely disabled. Okay, so if you go back before 1985 and look in the literature, the scientific literature on T cells, it's nearly all wrong. In fact, it is all wrong actually. Why is it all wrong? Well, because people didn't know how to purify T cells properly, and they were all mixed up with B cells. B cells are the other white blood cells. They make antibodies. They have another job to do, very important. Um, but they weren't there weren't the methods to purify them properly before roughly mid-80s, okay? So, you know, science, a lot of the science in immunology a few decades ago, it's not just, it's just wrong, okay? Um, And it's good to remind people about that, you know, when they think about science as the ultimate authority. Science is moving ahead, science is developing, it's progressive, but a lot of of the stuff is just wrong, okay? And uh, And so we want to do better, we want to understand God's creation better and so forth. So, um, to make science trump uh, as it, religion in that sense, you know, to think that's more important, um, it's good for the humility of scientists to remind them that a lot of stuff scientists believed a few decades ago or even last year, you know, is simply wrong. Okay, so uh, let's be careful here um, what we're doing. The other thing to remember, of course, is that they're asking different kinds of questions. A mistake often scientists make is they, they think, oh, well, the only type of knowledge which is really uh, valid knowledge is scientific knowledge. Well, that's not really the case, is it? So, if you like, religious knowledge is much more about the interpretation of what's going on in the world, the interpretation of, uh, of the universe, interpretation of the ultimate meaning, and so forth. So, science is about taking things to bits so we can understand all the bits, and religion is about putting all the bits together again and trying to find out what the meaning of the whole picture is. And that's a great note to end our um, afternoon. But I know that he'll be around um, this afternoon, uh, right after the service, uh, to answer more of your questions. Please do talk to um, Dr. Alexander. But could, could we just give him a, a round of applause?